How is it going, everybody? This is Sean Barnes. I want to welcome you to episode 58 of The Way of the Wolf. Our guest today is a gentleman named Bruce Dory. Our paths crossed about a year or so ago online. We had some conversations, we had some video chats and some emails back and forth. And I ended up buying his book, which we're going to talk about here in a, in a little bit. But Bruce has been quite an inspiration to me, and I thought it would be hugely beneficial for us to bring him on the show, share a little bit about his story, who he is, and, and what he does. So, Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here, Sean. One of the things I like to open with is just, who is Bruce Dory? Can you share a little bit about yourself so that the guests all better understand who you are? Be, you know, uh, in, in many ways, I'm happy to, and in some ways, you know, it's, it's what I, <laughs> it's, it's my story. So, so I guess the, the way to start is, right out of, I'm an engineer, right out of engineering school. Uh, I grew up in Toronto. So right out of engineering school, I took a job in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia. It was warm. I was selling air conditioning. It seemed like a logical idea. And that was back in the 80s. So, you know, really nobody wanted to go. And I was, you know, kind of a loner. That's the kind of, that really appealed to me, being a loner and um, probably a way I thought I could make a lot of money. And uh, so I did that. I was in Saudi for seven years. Then I moved to Houston. So, as you know, I lived in Houston for seven or eight years, um, and I, I, I moved to Houston to uh, basically do some consulting. I, I, was, I wanted to get into the real estate business, so I did. I moved into the uh, medical center, museum district, and I started buying apartments, old apartments, fixing them up. Really did well. I thought I enjoyed it. Um, and about eight years later, I just got so, I don't know, I, I got sort of beat down by litigation lawyers, honestly. I had one too many people trip and fall, and I'm like, I don't want to do this. And it was at a kind of a challenging time where I, I was just going to get married, and I really loved business. So I, I did an MBA, and I really, I just wanted to get into consulting. So I started consulting. And, and then let's see, I did consulting and I was a transformational consultant. So I got really, really interested in transformation, organizational transformation, the kind of stuff Werner Erhard was doing way back when. Uh, and I really, I mean, I loved it. The, as a consultant, I, I, I didn't really love it. I was not it wasn't delivering what we thought, what I thought it would deliver. So I kind of left and uh, semi-retired, sold some of my real estate in Texas, moved to Paris, France for four years. Uh, thought I could retire for the rest of my life in Paris, France, uh, living in the seventh era Dissimon, which is a beautiful part of the city, right in the West Bank, left bank. And uh, the stock market tanked. That was 2000. So everything tanked. So I had to go back to work. So... I went to Dubai with another air conditioning company, and I was in Dubai for about 10 years, about eight years in Dubai, and then two years back in the United States as, a, as an executive, a senior vice president with a big air conditioning company. And toward the end of that period of time, I got um, decreasingly interested in being part of the corporate world and increasingly interested in coaching because I... You know, I, and I shared in my book, I had kind of a, uh, I don't know how you say it in an easy way to say it, but I had kind of a, a meltdown, a breakdown. I, I was just turning 50. I was living in Dubai, so that was cool. I liked living in Dubai, but I was really sort of assessing and reassessing life, and I was not feeling very good. I was sort of struggling. I was not really enjoying my work. And the thing that got me through was I would spend time with my team. I do one-on-one -on -one coaching. And it, it was the thing that allowed me some connection and a way to feel sort of a, a self-confidence that I'd really accomplished something in my, my life and my career that I could pass on. And then when I moved back to the States, I moved from, from Dubai to, uh, 
Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is a pretty heavy transition, uh, hot to cold. And, um, yeah, because of that, and I don't know if it's because of that, but I had, um, I had a second back surgery. So I, I had back surgery years ago and in Dubai, it was really fantastic. It's so hot. It's so humid. For some reason, my body was really, um, pliable and it felt great. I moved back to Minnesota and it, everything tightened up and I, I blew what, what's called a fusion. I had an L3-4 fusion, a mechanical fusion, blew it out. And then I was in the hospital for months and it was really, really hard uh, transitioning to try to get out of the hospital and get back to work and, you know, pain meds and dealing with all of that stuff. And I, then I decided, you know, I'm just going to leave the corporate world and started and basically wrote my book. So that was kind of my way to just heal and get over uh, what was a, a really challenging chapter. So uh, I moved to a place that I loved. I, did, I didn't know anybody here. I was, I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I moved here and wrote my book. And now, eight years later, I'm coaching and consulting and doing all kinds of stuff. So Man, I love that story. It's so powerful to hear kind of you, you've been almost all over the world and worked for some big corporations, had very senior level executive roles that you've held. And what I find interesting about your story is the fact that you've kind of got to that point where some would argue you, you, you reach the pinnacle in terms of executive management and then you realize that the politics that come along with being in a large corporation, and actually yeah. you didn't say politics, but you said the corporate life, I think. Yeah. And it's, it is very challenging to, to navigate through. I think some people are successful in navigating through the challenges of very large corporations. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've found in, in my career, and I've never worked on for corporations as large as you have, but there's still there's an element of politics, especially at publicly traded corporations, that makes it increasingly difficult to to affect change and to yeah. move the needle significantly. It just feels like there's so much red tape. Oh. And and you mentioned your your book. So for those of you watching or listening, the name of Bruce's book is Lift: The Nature and Craft of Coaching. Now, Bruce, this is an incredible book. Is this your first book you've yeah. written? Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot of meat here. Tell me a little bit about what prompted you to create this book. And and another question I have is, how long did it take to write you? I see a lot of colleagues and friends that have written books, and their first book is, is a fraction of the length of this. There's a lot of meat and really good stuff in this book. So tell me a little bit about it. Well, thank you. Um, well, as a mechanical engineer, lift, the phenomena of lift was really valuable to me. I mean, I, I really, so back in the days where I was in, and I was drawn to, attracted to transformational consultant, this concept that you could, you could actually take on a way of being. So the idea, and this is, this goes back to, you know, Epictetus and all the Stoics, but this way of, and they, they, and I think now the way they, they, recommend thinking. So they think about doing is really, there's virtue in doing. There's not necessarily virtue in thinking about doing. And part of what I got from transformation was that if you could take on a way of being or be a leader and you, you in your mind, you would be this way, then as the old trope used to go, then you your actions would follow and you'd start behaving in that way and you'd produce great results. And um, I, I found that that just stopped working for me, that I kept planning, you know, I'm going to go and be this and then I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go be a real estate tycoon in Houston. And when I got, listen, honestly, when I got to be what I thought, you know, I had a couple million bucks and, and when I thought 
when I was there, I wasn't doing what I like to do. I was not in, I was not happy. I was not healthy. I was not doing anything I enjoyed doing. Yes, I was being this kind of conceptual, you know, success. But so I, going back to lift, the, the concept of lift is a, there's not too many forces in the universe, right? I mean, there's four basic forces in the universe. Lift is a natural force, so it's its, it's, its own force, but, and there's not many of those. And lift is a sort of a, a, a consequential force. So lift only happens, lift does not exist in the wing of an airplane. There's no lift in the wing of an airplane. Lift exists while it's doing something. It has to be doing, it has to be moving through, uh, you know, the air or or water or, or some sort of fluid. It, as it moves, it generates lift. And I re- I make the case that leadership is like that, and happiness is like that, and that, you know, for example, leadership is the thing that I like to, because I think leadership is super important. But leadership doesn't exist inside someone's head. Leadership is not a concept. It's not a way of being. It's not just a way of being. Leadership is a way of behaving in an environment. And if you, and I mean, I'm not, I don't want to sound like a know it all, but I, this is what I experienced that when I sat down and spoke with people, I felt better. Like, I just physically felt better. I felt, and I was being more of a leader by talking and coaching. And I, you, and so to, for me, it was like, I remember coming out of coaching sessions and I felt up, like a lift. I felt like, and, I, and they did too. I mean, I would go, my whole, I'd spend a month working and, you know, traveling back and forth to the States and, and Dubai and Europe. Nobody thanked me. <laughs> I'm an executive. Nobody ever. I never walked out of a meeting like, "Oh, Bruce, thank you so much. That was a great meeting. You really kicked my ass." And and our, you know, no. But one coaching session on a Saturday morning with a cup of coffee with somebody, and they're like, "Hey, listen, thanks a lot. That was great. I really." And that made my week. That and I'm like, why wouldn't I do this? Uh, you know. You know, one of the things that happened to me when I was 50, and it sounds, you know, I may be, maybe early for me, but I, I really realized it is going to be over soon. I think for me at 50, it's like I'm not a kid anymore. I am, this is, this is not just, I can have more free days. You know, this is like real, and, and I'm going to be gone pretty soon and, or incapacitated. Uh, like my dad, you know, who has Alzheimer's. And I'm, I just like, I don't want to, I don't want to go out that way. I want to go, I want to, I want to live, enjoy it. You know, one of the things that stuck with me as you were, as you were sharing that, and I'm going to kind of go back to the success that you have been able to achieve in your life and the, and the realization that, all the money and the titles and and all of that stuff, it's all well and good. But that true fulfillment comes from helping others, from lifting others up. And so I'm admittedly kind of on a similar path. And, And I talk about on the show, or I have over the past year, my story and my journey and how over the years, especially through my late 20s and early 30s, I was so focused and driven on achieving these goals and accomplishments. What salary can I get? What title yeah. can I get? And around my mid-30s, whenever I had the opportunity to step in and start leading human resources, it opened my eyes to this human element of what was going on. And I had, was given the opportunity to start helping and building and developing others. And that is my newfound passion. Yes, the I mean the the titles and, and money are nice, but at the end of the day, it's helping others accomplish things and helping others achieve that success that is has brought me true fulfillment over the years. Yeah. Yeah, I to I totally agree. And I, and one of the things that I'm finding and I think for me the the cool part about the book was it was you know, it was probably uh you know, a catastrophic investment in time and energy. It took me three years to write it, and but it was the the most oh I don't know in some ways gratifying three years 
Um, but is I have I have men and women who say to me and email me and say, listen, I really I I never thought about using my twenty years experience as a coach. I I didn't think my twenty years in the uh, real estate business here in Charlottesville, I, you know, I could use and help the next generation. And that's really the whole focus of my book saying that, look, coaching is, this is not some new thing. This is what they did the, the turn of the century. I mean, you know, I talk about Da Vinci in my book, Leonardo Da Vinci. He had a coach. They just called it a different name, but it was essentially a coach, not a, not just a mentor, it was somebody who actually taught him how to do stuff and told him he could do more and better and, you know, coached him, coached him to the next level. And I think that's part of, um, and again, I, I talk about this in my book and I really like this concept from school, but, you know, Eric Erickson and, um, who is it? There's another guy who did uh, adult development theory, but Eric Erickson his work really helped me because I didn't realize that it for most people at in your 50s and 60s, the way you think just changes. It just changes. And the things that I valued in my 30s and 40s, like you, you know, what car I was going to drive, what house I was going to live in, what neighborhood, all this bullshit that you realize at the end of the day, Everybody else is, you know, struggling and trying not to look like they're struggling. And doesn't matter if you're miserable. And But Erickson says, look, if you, when you're in your 50s to 60s, there are just certain things that become really important. And one of them is this idea of legacy and, and leaving a, you know, some experience for yourself that you did you did something you helped somebody made a difference and and that really helped me because it really kind of like validated my desire to start coaching and writing about coaching and stuff like that and and empowering people i think this is like the big thing for me now because i'm getting a lot of interest in this empowering people that have got 20 and 30 years to say you are going to be an awesome coach there's nobody better than you at coaching in this and you know this specific thing whatever that is hr or whatever yeah what, what, so what do you think creates that situation where people maybe they have 20 or 30 years of expertise in some sort of functional domain what do you think causes that hesitation to, yeah. to go out and start helping people. Because I, I've come across many people that are experts in their field, extremely knowledgeable, but it never even crosses their mind of the, the thought of the value that they could bring to somebody in a similar field that's, that's at a much younger, well, earlier stage in their career. So I guess the question is, what do you think prompts that, that hesitation and what have those conversations looked like for you and your clients as they unfold and you try to help them? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I thought about that a lot. And it's, you know, there's a great metaphor of crossing a river. It's a big river. Like you look at it, it's kind of like, how would I do it? It took me 20 years. I think, first of all, let me back up. There's two factors and one of the factors is the grass is always greener. So I should do something else. You know, a lot of people, I talk to a lot of people that got 25 years experience. And, you know, I got a guy who's like a, I, I got a guy. I have a friend who's, we're working together and he's in the nuclear business. 25 years experience in the nuclear business. He's got a PhD and he's talking about doing uh, online marketing of products. I'm like, are you? crazy and he said oh no i watched this video on youtube and this guy's making sixty thousand dollars a month selling you know tweezers on youtube i'm like uh i don't think i don't think i i know there's those videos but i think there's that i think there's the you work so hard and then oh my god there's an easier way there's a faster way there's a simple fix it's called the internet youtube whatever um so I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is it's like, how do you do it? And, um, and that's where this metaphor of if you can just help people put the next rock in the water, like just step on that rock right there. That's the one. 
get to that one. And then when you're there, you got to let's find the next one and the next place to stand and help people move through in little pe- in little bits because you know, for many of them that whole body of work is so huge, they don't know where to start. And the place that I go, Sean, often is to say, look, you know, what would be the be- what would be your ideal cup of coffee conversation? With somebody, and they're like, "Oh, I, I would love to talk about, you know, the new nuclear regulatory stuff, you know, because it's because we did it 20 years ago this way, and blah blah blah." And I mean, you you talk about what you know, you talk about what you like and what you know, and then you add the flair, you add that sort of nuance of coaching and the idea of limiting beliefs and all of those things into into that what you already know, and it's really cool because. You're now bringing new value to something that you just feel so rock solid confident in. Well, and so that's a that's a really good point that I want to actually dive into that a little bit deeper. So in the book, you talk a lot about how coming in and, and coaching, but coaching in an area that you are intimately familiar with, or you spent 20, 30 years in your career and trying to help people out and help them better understand, okay, what your experience has been in this domain, whether it's working with nuclear energy or whatever that for me, construction construction industry and heavy industry is my thing. So yeah, Yeah, exactly. So you've got your thing. I've got mine, which is kind of IT is always near and dear to my heart while I lead these other functional domains. IT is always going to have a soft spot in my heart and I get excited talking about it. And so to your point, when you get two people together and they go grab a cup of coffee, you have that passion and that fire that ignites in that conversation and the knowledge transfer both ways is just, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's just very, very helpful. Now, I think that the question that I have for you at this point is really when you talk about your your coaching in these domains that you're familiar with, talk me through where your head is at as it pertains to the difference of, of me coming in and coaching on technology versus somebody just trying to be a leadership coach overall and just saying, Hey, I do leadership coaching as opposed to being a mentor and leadership coach in a domain that I've got. 20 years of experience. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it is a great question that I've I've uh I've thought about a lot and my experience tells me that um I mean you could sort of use simple simple examples, right? So I was in the construction, air conditioning, heavy manufacturing industry in the Middle East. So if somebody is in any of those, you know, that's sort of a broad category, but if somebody's in heavy industry, and they want to get coaching. I feel pretty comfortable with that. I feel pretty comfortable understanding the language, getting up to speed. On the other side, the woman in my life who is in, uh, uh, you know, makeup and um, fashion and um, all things sort of makeup. Um, I am not comfortable in that world. I do not understand that world. I would be a terrible, and I am a terrible, I'm told all the time, (laughs) I am a terrible coach in that domain. I don't know the, I don't know, like you could say, well, it's just alignment and it's just accountability. No, it's not because alignment there is so different and I use an example, like one of the examples I use is that in the, in the air conditioning business, there are certain periods of time in the year before the cooling season and then before the heating season. So right at, you know, springtime, mid-springtime, the guys in the factory and the guy are, are crazy. They're ordering stuff. They're just just beside themselves. They're always late so that we used to have coaches and uh, Daikin and McQuay and they would, they would under in my team and, and they would say, you know, Bruce, this guy's having a problem with this guy. And we brought in a coach and the leadership coach said that they need to have more sessions because it's the guy has an issue um, communicating, blah, blah, blah. And I would say, well, this is not a really good time of year to have 
those kinds of conversations anyway. In other words, the reason the guy was having the issue had nothing to do with the relationship. It had everything to do with the context. At that time of year, you don't want to haul a guy from manufacturing out of manufacturing, make him sit in the office for three hours and do coaching conversations and a psychological evaluation. It's just not... The context is all wrong. So if you don't understand the context, you can really screw it up. Now, I've seen great leadership coaches who can, you know, move into different industries. You know, they move, I think they move from things like financial advisors through consultants and, you know, high-level consulting businesses very, very well. They don't need to understand insurance. But I think it's really context dependent. I, you know, I really make that case that, and in the, in the least case, you get up to speed really fast if you have the context. If you don't have the context and you don't know anything about eyeshadow or base or mascara or nail polish, you're, you're really screwed. There's like a lot of, I used to think there's three colors and a couple of shades, and that was it, you know? Like, oh, it's a red one, it's a green one? No, 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 no. Well, and so that's a really good point, is I think through some of the people that I coach, I feel the most comfortable and confident whenever I'm working with technology executives, because I'm already up to speed. I know the challenges. I know, for the most part, the types of personality profiles of people that that exist in the IT world. And so I can relate. I can talk the lingo. And I feel like I can add value much quicker whenever I'm working with a technology executive as opposed to someone who's maybe on the operations side of things or or something like that. So I think there's definitely something to that. And, And I see so many leadership development coaches and that is their skill set they just they're yeah. they're just a leadership coach that is very broad and i've seen people that made entire careers out of leadership development and one of the things that i found interesting is the things that they talk about and the things that i've discussed with them it all kind of boils down to all of these tools that you can put in your leadership toolbox and it's all kind of coming out there's commonality between the language and the lingo and everything and the skills that they're teaching but i've seen instances where they've never led more than maybe one person in their entire life and and so i find that interesting how some of them can come to the table and and add value and others you know maybe you can say okay well i i get where you're saying but help me understand how to apply that knowledge. And that's where things start to break down a little bit because maybe they haven't lived it or experienced it themselves. They've read everything through the textbooks, they understand, but being able to apply that knowledge can be challenging for somebody who doesn't have expertise in a given domain or field. Yeah. I also, and you know, talk about it in the book, there is a, there's like a subculture of leadership development that's, a lot of it was developed in the 60s and it is just not real like it's this this whole concept that you know if the whole idea of and and you'll you know i hope you don't get uh, I'll, I'll probably get hate mail about this but this whole <laughs> idea that um there is this uh attract law of attraction that that that's a real thing that you know, and I use I use science in the book, and I talk about that. There's there's no magnetic fields coming off of us. There's no there's nothing that it's there's no we're not some big television. You know, we're not we're not an antenna. We're human beings, and yes, there's things that we communicate nonverbally, uh, yeah, and all that. But one of the things, the reason I bring that up is because one of the one of the things they talked about in the '60s was this idea that. The access to uh, to um, becoming very good at something, the ex- access to expertise was language. So that they, the concept was that if you really knew a language and you understood the language, the language of leadership, for example, then you could become a good leader. And the example that they always used, and you may have heard this, or you read the books, you know this, uh, or you may have read other books, but... The, 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 the example that was used for years was the example of the Eskimos, that they had 
32 or 64 or 120 words for snow. And because they had so many words for snow and the distinctions for snow, they were really good at making, uh, um, you know, igloos and working in the snow. Now, the first thing, you know, there's two things. One, if you just learn the language and then they drop you off in the Arctic, you're not going to be any good. That, that, that's pretty clear. That doesn't take a genius. But there's a couple of geniuses, and one of them's a guy named Steven Pinker, who is a linguist from Harvard. And he did the research because he was interested in that. He thought that was like a really cool concept that back in, he did the research years ago. And he found out there's about 10 words for snow in Eskimo as there is in English. So that is not a thing. That is not a thing that, that if you know the words or the distinctions, you get good. No, that's, that's just the way to get good is to do it. Like to not be it, to do it. You physically do it and your body learns it and you learn it in the context. And the, the context is really important because you, you pick up all kinds of information from the context. So you, you'll learn that you do it 25 times at a certain temperature and without making the notes, you learn that, okay, at this temperature, it, does it, it behaves this way. And then at this temperature, it behaves this way. And then over time, you really learn something. It's the same in business that you learn with employees or with cultures and you really can help people learn if you understand that culture and you understand that context, you can help them. You can help them see things they just can't see. Yeah, there, there's so much truth in, in what you just described there. I've I've lived it and experienced it myself, and especially, well, in recent years, trying to to learn how to apply that knowledge and then impart it on yeah. people that are earlier on in in their career. So it, I want to. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I'm just, I, I could, we could talk about this all day because it's so interesting to me, but it, it's really easy. I hate to say it that way, but it's easy and it's easy. It happens to me too, but it's easy to get human beings to think that there is a simple way. It just, it, I'll tell you a true story. I, two nights ago, I was laid. I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. And I'm, you know, and I know you're not supposed to do this, but I'm scrolling through and Tony Robbins comes up and he's got this course, right? And I, I think I own every Tony Robbins course. I bought them years ago. And, and then, so he's selling and he's selling one of his courses that I bought 20 years ago. And this was late at night, like two nights ago. And I'm like, you know, I should buy that, that I need that right now. I, I was like, <laughs> wait a minute. I have that. I already own that. Why do I want to buy it? But the mind, just when you get a little bit tired too, you're like, oh, that's, I, I need that. That will be really helpful. And people take advantage of that. Really smart marketers, advertise, they take advantage of that. And then they sell you stuff you don't need. That's why most people buy books and tapes and then they watch like the first little bit and that's it. You know, it's not. So it's just easy to trick us and you got to be awake. So that prompted something in me that, that I want to discuss a little bit more. So you said something to the effect of it's easy to, to think that there's a simple way of doing things. Yeah. And my philosophy recently in, in trying to coach others and, and help them out has been, hey, it, it's taken me almost 25 years to be able to learn all of the things that I've learned. I made so many mistakes along the way. And part of what inspires and motivates me is is wanting to potentially help people compress that time down so that they yeah, can yeah. accomplish more in a shorter period of time. But as you were talking through that, that, I had a little bit of a realization event that the things that I've learned have come because of time, because of the mistakes that I've made over the years and having to learn through them. Now, I think the only thing that does that I'm thinking about here is whenever I'm working with somebody who's maybe 10 years into their career, giving them a little bit of visibility and some, some almost street signs to say, Hey, look out for this. And if mm -hmm. you encounter this, maybe turn right or maybe turn mm -hmm. left so that yeah. 
whenever they do experience that challenge or issue, they have this thought of, oh, wait a second, I've talked about this before. And so instead yeah. of just blindly going off to the left, they can put, put, put just a little bit of thought into it and maybe make a, a, a better decision going forward. So I just I find that very interesting. And as you as you were sharing that, that what was that's what was going through my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people will at the right time in coaching, you know, a lot of times coaching, you say the same things over and over, but they'll hear the right thing at the right time, you know, and and. I I just I I just think that um you first of all you can't really tell you know there's a there's a sort of argument that well coaches shouldn't tell people what to do and that's not coaching that's something else but if you think about like coaching the way it was developed in sports and and medicine and law and the arts it's a combination of many things. I don't know why we would handicap someone and say, you know, don't teach them. I mean, teaching is useful. Some, but a good teacher will know you don't, you don't give them the answer. You don't say that the answer is four. You, you help them get there by inference or by, you know, whatever, whatever way you, you know to do it from having done it before. So I think there's a, I just, I just think that, one of the things that I talk about a lot and, and I use, and I think I mentioned to you that I have a video course that's coming out on coaching for people who are executives with 20 years experience. And, and this is where, you know, this goes against a lot of the coaching advice these days, but I recommend people share their experience and you, you basically share, well, look, here's what happened to me, you know, and you tell that story and that, for me, often has made a bigger difference for when my coaches or my bosses would talk to me about something. They would telling me to do something was one thing, but if they shared a story with me about you know how I screwed this up or how I made this work, that was way more impactful. And so I really recommend when when I'm coaching people to become coaches is to just be wide open and share your experiences good and bad and people really learn from real world experience and they can sniff out nonsense and and bs yeah you know it, for me it's it's i have to echo that and and then i think that sharing my experiences allows them to better connect with me because yeah. a lot of times i've found that people have have had similar experiences and and they can relate to what i'm saying i found that to be hugely beneficial in allowing me to better connect with those individuals and 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 kind of break down those walls that sometimes exist in in coaching so all right so we've gone way down that rabbit hole so much good information i love this conversation i want to pivot too, just man. a little bit let's talk about behavioral assessments now, okay. you and I had a conversation yeah. about a year ago, and, and I took one with you, and, and the results were, were quite interesting because there were certain areas where I was way over here in the top 95 percentile and then, then way in the bottom 5 percentile in areas that were seemingly pretty close. So talk to me about your experience with behavioral assessments, what's your preferred one to go to, and so yeah. on. Yeah, I have two that I really like, um, and... One is a self-assessment and one is a 360. And it is a really interesting um, field. So, I, you know, there's, there's somebody who said that the valid ones are not very popular and the popular ones are not very valid. <laughs> and I, I think that's really, really accurate. There is... Um, the one that I think is really good is called the Hogan assessment. And I don't have any association with them. I don't get anything from them. I do think that I've read Robert Hogan's written a lot of books. Uh, he and his wife are both psychologists. He taught at the University of Tulsa, I think, or Oklahoma for a period of time. So he's a, he's a personality psychologist. And 
that's a fairly new field. But his his um, he's kind of a, a Jungian in that he thinks that there's there you know that we all have sort of archetypes that we all fall into certain categories and. Um, it's not a bad thing. It's and again, the the thing is to know what they are, and the so the, there's a good question. I always think that well, isn't a 360 just inherently better than a self assessment? And the answer is it depends. But the answer for me is no. In my experience, because I've seen 360s go awry, where. You know, you do a 360 with one group of people and this person comes up a certain way and you do a 360 with another group of people, same person, for the same person, and you get a different answer. And it depends on the context. It depends on their relationship with those people in the context. For, for example, the sales group versus the manufacturing group. That person will appear to be completely different to two different groups of people. Well, um, whereas a self-assessment stays stable over a period of time, one could say it's skewed. But read read Hogan's work, and he will tell you that it's pretty good. It's pretty valid, and it measures your reputation. In other words, if you answer these questions in this way, you're rep- you're likely to have this reputation, and they do. They literally have millions of, uh, you know, responses of, of people who are in business executives, not just off the street. So, so that, that to me makes a lot of sense. And the other, so I like that. And the other thing I like about Hogan is that Hogan says what I believe, that you're not always one way. Like when I get up in the morning especially Saturday morning, I have a cup of coffee, I go for a walk, you know, I am pretty good. I'm in my good, my good self, you know, like I feel good. Now, Friday afternoon, I fly home from traveling, I'm tired, my car is out of gas. That's a different me. It's, but it's me, but it's a different me, and I'm going to ha- behave in different ways. And Hogan accounts for that. They, they give you, with one assessment and a series of questions, they, they say, look, in your best days, you're going to be like this, and you're probably going to be like this on your worst days when you're challenged. And I think that's really useful because it's true for me. It, and it's not like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. It's kind of like you know a scale. Like you're, you're more this way, and then you become more this way. And it's pretty predictable. And again, it's really becoming aware, just driving awareness. If you know that about yourself, you get more aware. And then the 360 is called the Leadership Circle uh, 360. Boy, I can't say enough about that, how I think that is really, really a great uh, learning tool for an executive coach. Uh, And again, I don't work for these folks or anything, but I do think they're really good. And and I'll just give you the basics of it because I happen to think the world of it that essentially the leadership circle says that there's a fundamental tension in in our in human beings there's a tension between being a pot being sort of driven by possibility and and the future and being excited about something and going for it and being courageous there's that tension we all have that but then we also have fear what'll happen if i do that so we're driven by these two forces and that the, the circle, the leadership circle, has those two measures. So the top half is a sort of measure of your, your, your ability to, to reach out and to go for it and to, and to be courageous. And the bottom half shows your propensity to be fearful and, and cover up and be cautious. And then, you know, you, it, 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 Anyway, I will, I will, it's a very beautifully done, I think, model. There's a lot to it. You don't want to do a leadership circle until you've spent hours and hours really learning how to do it because it's, it's very detailed. But it's, it, it teaches you a lot uh, just learning how to use the leadership circle, and I think it's worth it. And, um, yeah, I think, it's, I, think it's a great, I think it's a great tool. I think one of the things that that stuck out to me is the awareness. 
That is one of the biggest things that I've seen adds yeah. value to people is because most of what they experience whenever they're reading through the, the output of the assessment, it's kind of a realization event of, oh, wow, yeah, that is me. Oh, wow. Okay. And so there, there's value in the self-assessment piece of it. But then there's also a tremendous amount of value in the 360 piece. People kind of find out, hey, how are you perceived by others around you? Now, yeah. what I have also found interesting is th that can be a little bit more difficult for people to, to, to read through and hear that feedback of how they are perceived by others. They get a little bit defensive and a little bit unsure. So yeah. how do you reconcile that? Whenever you're coaching somebody and you, you've got your 360 over here and you've got your self-assessment over here, what are those responses like in most of your clients? And then how do you kind of pull all of that together to formulate some sort of a plan or a move forward process? Yeah. Oh, that's a big question because that's really, <laughs> that's coaching. But let, let me just say that I only coach people who want to get something done, some measurable result. So I, 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 am, I use different methods, measures. I use objectives and key results. That's something that I think is really very, very, very useful. OKRs, if you're familiar with them, John Doerr. But that, that whole thing is just a way of measuring. So I, against the backdrop of doing something, going for something, like you hire a coach to say, I want to go to the Olympics. I want to win the gold. I want to make more money in my business. I want to finish a book, I, you know, whatever that is. So against that, people run up against roadblocks. And then when they run up against the roadblock, that's where the assessments come in and you, you've got to learn to uh, relate that assessment to where they're blocked. And a lot of the time, so to make it easy, a lot of times it's a relationship. So they'll say, well, I can't get this done because this son of a bitch, is, <laughs> excuse me, this SOB is in the way and blah. And then you're like, okay, hold on. Well, let's talk about the SOB for a couple of minutes because maybe that's, maybe the, that interruption there is part of why this is not getting done. And then you can use perhaps the, you know, one of the, the, the Hogan dark, it's called the dark side. So it's you know the, the sort of negative when you are tired. They, there's an acronym that they use, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, the HALT acronym. So when you're one of those things, you're not going to be your best, and, um, or you may not be your best, and then you behave in a certain and predictable way, and you got to sort of learn that. When you learn that, and the best way to learn it is to catch it in action. So you say, you know, and, and this is tricky, but it's where you say, you know, you know what we talked about your, um, your you know, I, it's called the HDS in Hogan. So we talk about the HDS and, and your, your sort of short, short, uh, shortness of uh, uh, dealing with people on this particular issue. I'm, I'm struggling to give you a good example, but but people know their weaknesses. So you say, look, you know how we talked about you uh, lose patience and technical issues, right? Here, how do you see that playing out in this relationship right here? And do you see that? How do you see that playing out with respect to the goal, to respect to the, out, the outcome? And if they can connect those two, first of all, you probably have to undo this one. You have to undo just the relationship so they get disentangled from the relationship so they're not emotionally kind of pissed off and upset about the relationship. And once you can do that, they can start to see, oh, right, I did that again. You know, I keep doing that. When I get angry, when I, I didn't realize I was lonely, hungry, but I was hungry then, and I, I went off on the guy and blah, 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 and that's what... And it's really remarkable how relationships are the grease or the, you know, they stop things. They either make things go or they stop things. And, we, and it's all a function of being, having great, honest relationships. And that's the hard part in some cases is, you know, really having people be straight with you and tell you the truth, tell you the badness and the bad thing and the good thing. So 
I but like that, that's how you do it. You, you have a context. You're going for something. Something's in the way. How does the assessment help you? I like the fact that you only coach people that want to get something done. Whenever I start having sessions with, with whomever it may be, especially if it's someone new that I haven't really worked with before, I find that I'm interviewing them just as much as they're interviewing me because, yeah. I, yes, you could pay me, but quite frankly, I don't want to take somebody's money if they don't have any interest in building and developing themselves. They have to have a very real conversation and acknowledge, hey, I need some guidance because there's things that I'm doing wrong. I need somebody that's going to be honest and work with me and help me overcome these. Not somebody that's just going to be a hoorah, go team in the background, but not actually have the deep conversations to address root challenges or root issues that are preventing you from moving forward. So I love that you take that approach. I think there's there's a lot to that. And, you know, I I can't say that I've seen a lot of coaches that take the other avenue where they just root for the team all the time. But I, for me, it seems more beneficial and just a waste of time if somebody's not actually going to put in the effort and have those those real conversations with himself. Yeah, yeah. So, no, it's 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 important. It's critical. So you let's gotta, talk a little bit about this past year. Earlier, you mentioned yeah. before we started recording how you kind of shifted your business model a little bit. So I want to talk about that. Wow. But then I also want to talk about fitness. I know that I've seen oh, obviously been following you for a while, and I think you put in a, a home gym. So yeah. somewhere there in your house. So let's dive into both of those topics for a bit. Sure. Well, yeah, the last year, I uh, so a lot of my friends, clients, business partners are all over the place. In Europe, I do a lot of, I was doing coaching in the Middle East. That was something that was kind of a real, something I love to do, but it's also where I could have a competitive advantage. I was uniquely, so client, so you know, companies would hire me to help their uh, expats blend into Saudi Arabia or to blend in or to be, you know, to really do well in Dubai or Qatar or Abu Dhabi or wherever it was. And that was really cool, very exciting, fun. And, and I think I made a huge difference there because they, they needed to blend in. They, not blend in is not the right word. They needed to sort of feel comfortable there and, and become effective there. Um, and similarly in Europe too, I was doing the same sort of thing in Europe. And um, my deal was I would get on an airplane and fly out. And I, you know, I even convinced myself I like flying and I did. I, I, I mean, I, I do. But so that all came to like a, an abrupt end. And, I will tell you that the coaching, particularly a 12-hour different time zone, is nearly impossible. You can't, you know, I don't think, it didn't work for me to just get on a one-hour phone call with somebody at a 12-hour time difference and make a difference and you do it once a month or it just didn't work. It didn't work the same as sitting in front of somebody, spending a day, having dinner with them, having lunch. and So that all basically went away. Um, and I still have great relationships, friendships, but we're not doing any coaching. It's mutually agreed. It just doesn't work. Um, so I'm doing more and more and more, uh, coaching from here, coaching from my house. And, um, I've done, I put together a video series. I spent the last year doing a video series, um, uh, because I, I think it's, first of all, I really, there's just way too many people who have all this experience that they don't know how to translate that experience to become a coach. And there's so much nonsense out there in terms of books and things about don't, you know, don't use advice and don't give advice and don't, coaching is coaching and don't, you don't need to know the talk. You know, I, I read something recently that said, you want to be, become a coach. And then it said, and now choose what you want to coach. I'm like, are you kidding me? You can't just choose what you want to coach. You got to like know it. You can't just, oh, let me think. I want to coach, you know, knitting. 
<laughs> I don't know. Makeup. I mean, it, it's it's just really that bizarre to me that that industry is so. Uh, I don't know. It just it's so crazy that people really think they can do that. So uh, this is for, my program is for men and women who are really experienced, want to use that experience to coach the next generation, whether that's inside of an organization so they don't have to leave the organization, they stay inside. And I talk about the assessments, you know, how to use them, doing examples of them. Uh, I talk about the OKR process, the objectives and the key results, and really go through the whole thing. And I'm, I'm betaing that with a bunch of people right now. And it's really, it's fun. It's fun because people, they get to, you know, they get to just watch it over and over if they want or write down questions. And so it's pretty cool. I'm enjoying it. Well, I like that approach because it also gives you the opportunity to have a greater impact at scale. Yeah. Whenever you take everything that you've got up here, instead of having these one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, which are highly impactful, no doubt, but once you are able to put it into some sort of a platform where you can reach more people and positively yeah. affect and help these coaches learn what they need to learn to be yeah. more successful as they start their coaching or build their, their coaching practice. So, I mean, I think, that's, I think that's the right approach. Eventually, it's something that I will probably get into, but right now I'm just more focused on the one-on-one, -on -one, high impact, and then also just kind of learning my own coaching style. You know, I've been doing it for just a few years now, and it's just I'm still learning, and, and I myself am evolving and figuring out what works best for, for myself and, and my clients. But I think you're, you're kind of at that next step where you can now put it into some sort of a platform. And I would love the opportunity to chat more with you about that and, and potentially beta it and, and try it out. So you got it. I definitely have to follow up with you on, on that. So, and then so let's talk about, about fitness. Cause I think that yep. the, 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 uh, the fitness thing is the other thing that has saved my life. And, and I don't mean that, you know, sort of melodramatically, but I think that, um, you know, even, even 10 years ago, I was not in good shape. No, I was in bad shape. And I wasn't, if you looked at me, I wasn't, I was maybe 20 pounds heavier than I am now, sort of puffy. And, uh, but I was taking medication to help me sleep, you know, and I would say, well, you travel the way I travel, you'd have sleep. No, I was, I was, you know, drinking too much. I was eating poorly, um, at the wrong times, I didn't really understand how the body worked. You know, I would eat late at night and, and then have a couple of drinks and try to go to sleep. And, and, you know, that didn't work. So I take a sleep medication. That was really brilliant. And, <laughs> and of course I have back issues. So take pain medication for my back and it was just a, a mess. And, I think it was just like slowly, 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 your body really responds and says, thank you. You know, you get a good night's sleep. You work out hard. I started walking when I moved to Charlottesville. So I just, all I did was walk. I would walk 40 minutes and Charlottesville is an awesome little place. So I'd walk around the university and then I was living near there. And then I would start doing really light weights. I buy like two dumbbells started doing that. And then, then now I've got a full gym. Uh, I, I, and again, it's not like you, at least for me, if you do it, um, slowly and you build up to it, it, uh, I mean, you work out, you know, it, it is something that pays you back. So you can kind of like, Say, oh, good, I get to work out. You know, it's sort of like, oh, shoot, I got to work out. But then, oh, it'll be good. It'll be good. It's kind of like you feel good when you walk out of there. You sleep well. You're not, you're not sort of enticed into having sweets or, you know, some bad food. You just, I don't know. It just really changed. It was one of these things where I'm convinced that I have terrible willpower. And, you know, that never worked for me, willpower. and But... But doing um, like exercise and that sort of thing, it's it's kind of, the willpower comes with doing it because when you do it, you feel good and you want to feel good and it's kind of like a self fulfilling prophecy. So I pretty much 
it's built into my schedule and my life. Yeah, I think the importance for me and what I've come to realize is that it's all about building those healthy habits. Yeah. And yeah. for me, it, it was very much so. It was probably about 10 years or so ago that I've always kind of exercised and ate relatively clean. But about 10 to maybe 12 years ago, I really started focusing a lot on understanding nutrition, yeah, the too. importance yeah. of sleep. I mean, that was something that I struggled with. I, I used to be real big into playing video games. I would stay up till two in the morning playing video games then get up and go to work. Very, very unhealthy. And so you start learning those things and building these, what I'll refer to as self-reinforcing good habits. And I say self-reinforcing because once you get into the habit of doing it, you feel so good. And then when you don't do it, you just feel miserable. That's the key. Exactly. That's almost the bigger key. I, I totally agree. Yeah. So what is one of the most powerful lessons that you have learned throughout your journey? Oh, boy. I think it is not to project. Um, I, I would project the way I think things were going to go. I would make a decision and I would project and then I would just freak out and make all kinds of decisions and I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to do the, and I really learned to breathe through it and like just sort of trust that let's, you know, get a good night's sleep. Let's think about it tomorrow and allow it to just sort of pass. And I think that's, it is kind of like that one day at a time thing where you just say, look, it'll look differently tomorrow. And, you know, I, I, I'm working on my second book. And one of the things that I, two of the things that I think are just so important, I keep coming back to are patience and courage. And courage is a tricky one because, but courage for me means not running. Like I, I would, my thing was, I would, I was in Saudi Arabia and I got to go somewhere. What's the next place to go? Go to Houston. Okay, great. What's the next place to go? Go to Paris. Okay, great. What's the next place? You know, it's always going to be the grass is greener and there's all. And now I'm like, I have the patience to realize it's not about, that's not the solution. I could, there's a, there's a bet, there's another way to look at that. That doesn't mean you rule out traveling and that sort of thing, but it's really allowing in the day, you know, sort of living in the day and, and just sort of addressing what you've got right now and not projecting and predicting the future and figuring it all out because you can't anyway. So I, I don't know if I answered the question. Very much so. And, and I know exactly where you're coming from. It's something that I've struggled with at, at certain points. Well, if I'm being honest, the majority of my professional career, when, when I see something being done in a way that I don't think is, quote, right. And so I start thinking through, okay, how do I have this conversation with the right person? What, what do I need to say? And I start modeling out all these different scenarios and which way the conversation could go and end up having many sleepless nights. Yeah. And in the end, none of it mattered. And I think yeah. back to a year ago or two years ago when I was struggling with it quite a bit, and I look back and all those sleepless nights, none of it mattered. The challenge that I was facing or the team was facing at that point in time, it's not even a blip on the radar. And so being able to understand the importance of patience and understanding, yeah. hey, we're just going to take this one day at a time. Yes, it's yep. stressful. Yes, it's frustrating. Just one foot near the, in front of the other. Or, or like your analogy earlier, just put one rock in the stream Okay, yep. let's step there. Okay, now let's find another one. Okay, just one step at a time. Yep. And patience has been something that, that I've struggled with and I'm still struggle with a little bit, but I'm getting better at it. So, no, I think, I think that's part of this idea that the grass is always greener. That when, because I don't, I didn't have patience, that when somebody presented me with the greener grass, I jumped on it. And it's really being able to say, you know, and after, you know, my age, I've, I've jumped on a few bad things, right? So I'm like, damn it, I'm not going to do that anymore. And, and patience, you learn it. And you're like, ah, 
I already, I already tried that one, man. Not gonna do, not gonna, not gonna do that. All right. Well, Bruce, we'll go ahead and start wrapping this up. Do you have any final words that you would like to share with the audience? Um. Well, I think that I went through a challenging time in my fifties and now in my sixties, and it can be really stressful. I mean, I. Uh, and I, I think for me, I want to just share that I've been a loner most of my life, if not all of my life. And um, But I do think now I'm connecting with more people who, like me, are seeing, you know what? These could be really great years. This is like, I've got my health. I've got a little money in the bank. I certainly know how to, you know, I know my career and I think I could be a really good coach. It is a really, I think, a really wonderful time, and and it's not easy because the rest of the world looks at us like, you know, you're now sixty, and it's there. And when we also look at ourselves, you know, you think back when you're when I was in my thirties and forties and thinking, what I'm, what am I going to be like in, in my sixties? And and you got to really sort of challenge that because we are going to live into our 90s and beyond in a very, very healthy way. And we, got, we could have a really great life and make a big difference, you know. And, um, and I think that if that's something that interests people that, you know, I'm, I would love to be part of that. I don't know, you know, how and when, but I, uh, I think that's really a possibility that, that, you know, going forward that there's a resurgence that, you know, there was books written about my generation, the baby boomers, that weren't very flattering. And I don't disagree with them in some ways. You know, we didn't, we weren't always the best, but we, we can now make a difference and give back and contribute. You know, there's some real challenges out there. And I think we can be the, uh, you know, some of us can really make a difference and, and uh, do something good. So, yeah. So, so what's the best way for people to contact you or learn more about you and all the things that you're doing? So the best way, I guess, is the my website, which is brucerdory.com, or my email, which is bruce at brdory.com, uh, or buy my book. <laughs> Got all the info. Yep. For all of you listening, again, the book is called Lift, The Nature and Craft of Coaching. Bruce, I have loved this book. I've actually gone through and, and read little bits and pieces of it from time to time after I read through the, the whole thing a year ago. And so I found this to be extremely beneficial. So for all of you that are kind of at that point in your life and career where you want to, to learn how to have a greater impact on those around you, I would highly encourage you to go check out this book. It's, it's available on Amazon. I'm sure kind of anywhere you just Google it and, and can definitely find it. Bruce, thank you so much. This was an incredible conversation. I am so yeah, glad that we had the opportunity to finally sync up and, and do this. Yeah, for me too, Sean. Thank you very much. This was great. All right. Okay, for the rest of you, thank you so much for tuning in and, and watching the show on YouTube or listening to the podcast. I can't thank all of you enough. Y'all have a good one.